This podcast is not here for those people that are trying to stay out of last place. Because those consequences don't exist for the people that are listening to this podcast. These are the people that always end up in the playoffs but can't seem to get over that hump. Or the ones who just want to dominate year after year just to show everybody else they're the champions. Guys, this is a fantasy football intervention. And we're about to intervene with your fantasy football life. You know when you just walk into a room and something doesn't feel right, right? You know something's going to happen and it's not going to be a good, it's not going to be a good thing. You see it happen all the time in movies, right? You saw it happen when Star Fox, you're playing Star Fox and they're like, it's quiet, too quiet. I think that was Peppy. Be careful, it's a trap! And then all of a sudden, all those ships come out and start firing at you like crazy. Be careful, it's a trap, man. It's a trap. This kind of thing occurs in fantasy football all the time. I mean, it's kind of like Allen Robinson and how late he's going in, in seasonal drafts this year. It's crazy to me. It's crazy to me. And you know that something's not right. You know that that cannot, cannot be the right spot he's going in. He has to go earlier than that. Your intuition's right. Your instincts are right. And right now, Swift, DeAndre Swift is just bombing, bombing off of rookie boards. How did he go from the first projected dynasty pick when the season ended down to fourth or fifth? How? The other day I saw in a draft where DeAndre Swift went seventh overall, and no, it was not a super flex league. It makes no sense. None. DeAndre Swift was projected to be the best running back out of this class, almost hands down. Now he's falling behind Cam Akers, J.K. Dobbins, Clyde Edwards-Hilaire, Jonathan Taylor. Right? That's crazy to me. Now, don't get me wrong. I do think that Jonathan Taylor is the best running back prospect coming out of this draft. I think by far he has the highest floor and potentially has the highest ceiling. He's undisputed number one pick in rookie drafts. Number one, undisputed, undisputed. I'm done arguing about the CEH value. I'm done. I'm done. CEH is not the number one pick. It is Jonathan Taylor. I'm done. So knowing that I love Jonathan Taylor, I went back and I looked at just some of the stuff with Swift and I wanted to compare those two. Compare, contrast, try and figure out why exactly he's falling down the boards. Obviously a little bit of a disappointing 40 time, but that's a joke. You could see his, fe- his speed on the field was unquestionably, unquestionably up there with all the other running backs so far this year. Now, let's go ahead and start with college. All right, I'm going to look back. And I'm going to compare their college values coming out. And obviously, Taylor, Jonathan Taylor, outproduced Swift by nth degrees. I'm not arguing that at all. Not even a little bit. That's not in question. What is in question 
was his teammates, the division that he plays in, and of course, the touches amassed during that time. Look, DeAndre Swift had to compete for touches with Nick Chubb and Sonny Michel. Both those guys are the starters for their team. And don't forget, Sonny Michel was sought after. He was a first-round pick. Taylor? Taylor had Nakia Watson, a freshman in 2019. 2018, Taiwan Deal, who had a total of 217 attempts in his college career. And then Bradwick Shaw in 2017, which is just, just a joke. It's a joke. Hell, his best receiver was Quintez Cephas, who he played with for two years. His best season, he only put up 900 yards. There is no question Jonathan Taylor was obviously, obviously the entire offense. DeAndre Swift had much, much tougher teammate competition back there in Georgia. And on top of that, on top of that, he played in the SEC compared to Taylor playing in the Big Ten. The talent on defense in the SEC is miles and miles and miles ahead of the Big Ten. It's not even close. But my favorite thing about Swift over Taylor is that he didn't accumulate massive amounts of touches in college. Sure, you could say that Taylor proved that he could handle an NFL workload. Hey, and I'm on board with that. But you're talking about 950 touches in three years. 950! To put that in perspective, he has out-touched Christian McCaffrey in Christian McCaffrey's first three years in the NFL. McCaffrey's played in 48 games. Taylor's only played in 41. And yet Taylor has more touches than Christian McCaffrey does so far in the NFL. That is crazy to me. Crazy. But we talk about DeAndre Swift. His touch count was still extremely, extremely healthy. He had 513 touches over his three years. He had almost 200 touches in two of those years. He can handle workload. That's not in question for me. Plus, on top of that, he can catch passes, which I absolutely love. This isn't meant to bash Taylor. It's to ask why. Why is Swift not as sought after as Taylor is? Oh, the situation is so much better for Taylor. All right, let's take a look at that. Let's take a look at their situations. Obviously, with Swift going to the Lions, he has on Johnson in front of him. Right? on Johnson, over the past two years, has only played 18 games. Marlon Mack, who's in front of Jonathan Taylor, has played 26 games over the past two seasons. Marlon Mack had a bigger breakaway run rate. More evaded tackles per game, more yards per touch, and far more yards created per game as well. Meanwhile, Kerryon Johnson averaged about two yards per carry against a stacked front compared to Marlon Mack's 4.4 yards per carry against a stacked front. Well, the offensive line was obviously better. It was so much better in Indianapolis. Sure. Sure, you win. I seed, you win. Where's my white flag? I need to wave that shit because I obviously have no idea what the fuck I'm talking about. I have to wave it. I quit. I quit this. I'm done. Don't know what I'm talking about. Right? If 7% improvement 
on run blocking efficiency makes Marlon Mack that much more efficient than on Johnson, then you win. I quit, you win. Except for the fact that they both had a bottom 10 run blocking efficiency rate rated by playerprofiler.com for individual running backs that qualified. Yeah, both bottom 10. Neither one of their situations were great. And if you want to go by team blocking, right? You don't want to say, oh, individual players, blah, blah, blah. You got a problem with that? Cool. Cool. We'll go check out what the football outsiders have to say because they actually do their rankings based off of total offensive line production for rushing yards. So let's just go ahead and check that out. Let's look at that real quick. And it's kind of funny because the Colts are only creating 0.2 yards more than Detroit when it comes to adjusted line yards for the running back. Only 0.2 yards more. Meanwhile, Detroit saw a by far, by far smaller stuffed rating. And Indy, the majority of their yards came in the open field. Indy rated 10th in open field yards for the running back compared to Detroit being 25th. 25th. And on top of all that, Detroit added two more maulers to that offensive line. Yeah, they added two more run-blocking offensive linemen in the interior and in the 2020 draft. What does all this mean, though? What does it all mean? What does it all mean? I just hit you guys with a bunch of numbers. You guys probably don't get my point. So let me break this down. Let me give you guys a little bit of a translation here. Marlon Mack is by far a superior runner than Carryon Johnson, who is also healthier and more reliable. Jonathan Taylor, <laughs> he was drafted to be a part of a shared backfield in year one. Not year two. I don't believe Marlon Mack's going to get resigned, but year one, he got drafted to be part of a shared backfield. And Swift, wait, wait, before I go into Swift, I just want to make this clear. Jonathan Taylor is my number one running back for Dynasty. Hands down, number one running back. This is not meant to bash Jonathan Taylor. I'm just trying to figure out why Swift is falling so far down the boards. When you look at the potential of Swift being able to take over. So let's go ahead and look at Swift. With Swift, we have fresh legs. Potentially getting a shot to be the bell cow back this season if Carrion cannot stay healthy. And he's going to be behind a better offensive line. And hopefully a healthier Healthier situation with Matt Stafford leading that offense, who, by the way, loves to pass to running backs. Loves to pass to running backs. Wow, Swift? He loves catching balls. He loves it. He loves catching balls. Right? Over 20 this past year in college, over 30 the year before that. I love it. So why the... Why? Why is he becoming some people's fourth or fifth running back in rookie drafts? It doesn't make any sense to me. Why? I saw him go in the seventh round, or the seventh overall pick. Excuse me, I saw him go as the seventh overall pick in rookie drafts. That makes no sense. I would be selling my soul if I saw him dropping down to number seven. Well, obviously not selling my soul because that would be a first round pick or first overall pick, obviously. But either way, I'm trading up to grab him if he's falling. Even to number five, I'm trying to trade up at that point. All these other rookies have issues. They've got speed bumps in the way. 
Damian Williams is still in Kansas City. Andy Reid likes his veteran backs. CEH lacks ideal breakaway speed, along with the fact that even if he does become Westbrook, like Andy Reid was talking about, guess what? Westbrook was only an RB1 in fantasy for two years. I'm so tired of hearing that argument. Two years, he was an RB1 in fantasy. That's it. J.K. Dobbins, <laughs> he's still the number two guy in that offense. And guess what? They could very, very, very easily, very easily restructure Mark Ingram's contract to stretch it out two or three years. They're going to have the space with all these rookies that they've been drafting. It would only make sense for Mark Ingram to accept a restructured contract. If not, he's going to end up getting cut after this year. I see him restructuring. Why would he not want to be in this offense? It's perfect for him. And now he has J.K. Dobbins to take some of this workload off. Not to mention Gus Edwards, Hill being there. It's a very crowded backfield. We don't know the opportunity share that J.K. Dobbins is going to get consistently. I still like J.K. Dobbins, don't get me wrong. But I don't think he's above Swift. Cam Akers? <laughs> That's a good one. That horrible offensive line. A guy they just drafted. A few spots where they drafted Cam Akers. They drafted him in 2019. Malcolm Brown is a coach's pet. It just doesn't make any sense to me as why Cam Akers is all of a sudden flying up draft boards. Getting ahead of Swift in some cases. There is a gaping, a gaping hole of opportunity that needs to be filled. If you guys know what I'm saying, wink, wink. No, is a gaping hole in that Lions offense that Matt Patricia is obviously searching for using the 35th overall pick in the draft to take Swift while they still have carry on Johnson there being the big threat. If this was three years ago, Swift would have gone in the middle of the first round easily. Easily. There is a gaping hole of opportunity that needs to be filled. And Swift only needs a couple opportunities to do that. And he's going to take off in this offense. Blows my mind that people are, are not talking about it. It blows my mind that people are letting Swift just fall between their fingertips. It hurts me. That's fine. Let them do it. Let them talk about J.K. Dobbins. Let them talk about Clyde Edwards-Hilaire. Let them talk about Cam Akers. Meanwhile, we can pull Kansas City Shuffle, baby. Let's pull Kansas City Shuffle on these fools. I'm telling you. Everyone looks left, and we go right. Another way to pull Kansas City Shuffle on your league mates is by joining us on Patreon. Patreon.com slash Fantasy Intervention. Once again, that's patreon.com slash fantasy intervention. You can also follow us on Twitter at FF underscore intervention. Oh, yeah. Facebook, facebook.com slash fantasy intervention. Hell, you can listen to this podcast on Google Play, Apple iTunes, Stitcher, and CastBox, baby. Yeah, get in on it. But if you really want to show support for this podcast, then go on to Patreon, patreon.com slash fantasy intervention. It costs you two bucks a month. Go join our circle. You guys get content on top of content on top of content, extra episodes, articles that I write up. 
My rankings will be up there very, very, very shortly. I'm excited to put those up. Go join us. Patreon.com slash fantasy intervention. Two bucks a month. Two dollars a month. And even if you can't afford that, guys, understand we're in a little bit of a tough time. Just take a few minutes and go leave us a review. Go leave us five stars. Go write us a review. It takes a few seconds and it helps us move up the charts. And guess what? The more we move up the charts, the more people listen to us, the more sponsors we can end up getting means that the more time I can spend doing this podcast for you guys. I can dive deeper in than what I'm already doing. I don't know how that's possible. I really don't, but I'll figure out a way. We can start investing into app development and website development, get everything up and running for you guys on that aspect. Yeah. All it takes is a few seconds to go leave us five stars or 30 seconds and go write us a review. Just say good job. Literally, the time that I started talking about it, you would already be done writing that review by now. You'd already be done. It's that easy. But you guys aren't here to listen to me ask for support. You guys are here for a football show, right? Fantasy football, baby. That's what we do here. I think that's what we do here, at least. And I definitely, definitely pulled a Kansas City shuffle on y'all fools. Yeah, I did. You thought it was going to be a running back-based episode, didn't you? Didn't you? Oh, got you. Got your ass. Got you. What I want to do for this episode is actually take a step back. I want to look at some of these tight end situations that people really haven't dove into yet. Because let's be honest, who really wants to dive in to tight end situations? Who really wants to do that? Well, the people listening to this podcast probably do. But the majority of people out there, you literally put your hands over your eyes, run your finger along the the map, and just pick a random tight end and hope you don't get screwed over. I know. I know. I do the same thing. Close your eyes and just pick one. You think you know which tight end isn't going to let you down, right? There's Vance McDonald truthers. Oh, oh, I know. I know all you people out there that were loving Eric Ebron. I know. But tight ends have to be covered. They have to. You have to understand their situations. You have to understand snap counts. You have to understand base formations in which coaches like running certain plays in certain times. You can stream quarterbacks. You can stream defenses. You can stream kickers. But it's almost impossible, impossible to successfully stream tight ends, especially without knowing, without knowing the analytics in depth. That, or you could just pick whatever irrelevant, well, typically irrelevant tight end is playing the Arizona Cardinals that week, hoping that they're not facing up against an already owned tight end. And just play whatever tight end is facing the Cardinals. He said, that's what I did last year. But no, this isn't last year. So let's get ahead of this curve and check out some of these guys. We're going to start it out. We're going to unroll this red carpet with Johnny Smith. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me, Johnny Smith? How? How? No. How? 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 How is nobody talking about this guy? How? This is insane. It's insane. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? 85.7 contested catch rate, first for tight ends. 9.8 yards per target, second for tight ends. 2.1, I'm sorry, 2.41 yards of separation per target, second for tight ends. 
120.3 quarterback rating when targeted, eighth for tight ends. 277 yards after the catch, eighth for tight ends. Eighth. Meanwhile, he only saw 45 targets, which was 31st for tight ends. And yet he had 277 yards after the catch? That's crazy. You talk about breakout years, you need, you need to focus on Johnny Smith. He had a 33% dominator rating, which was 92nd percentile in college. He broke out at age 18, which is 100th percentile, because young tight ends don't break out. His Spark X score was in the 93rd percentile. And I know, we, I know I'm going to hear it. Here come all the haters. Titans don't pass the ball. Yeah, you're right. They don't. But why don't they? Why did the Titans not pass the ball last year? Well, they have Derrick Henry. Sure, whatever you want to say. Efficiency is the answer. The Titans were 31st in the league in pass attempts in 2019 with 448, only behind the Ravens. Yet they were first in the league in yards per attempt. They were 30th in plays per game behind only the Washington Redskins and the Pittsburgh Steelers, which both have horrific offenses, at least the Steelers did last year. Yet the Titans were top 10 in scoring offenses. How does that happen? This could be one of the most efficient teams of all time. This is insane. You look at other high-scoring teams, teams like Tampa Bay and Baltimore, they were still top five in plays ran per game. Meanwhile, the Titans were 30th, 30th, and still in the top 10 for scoring offenses. That's crazy to me. That's crazy. The point I'm trying to make is efficiency is tough to maintain, especially with a team that just lost a dominant offensive lineman and a key piece to their secondary in addition. Obviously, they could end up having worse field position, right? I mean, one defender isn't going to change it extraordinarily. However, it could affect their field position slightly. What I'm more worried about is an offseason for defensive coordinators to study A.J. Brown. I'm going to go with him not having nearly, nearly as many breakaway runs. And Derrick Henry? (laughs) He's got to see less run-blocking efficiency. More pressure from defensive ends. Do I think it's going to fall off a cliff? No. No. But I think, I really do think, there are going to be more plays run Throughout offensive drives, creating more third down passing situations, which in turn creates more opportunity for Johnu and for him to get his hands on the ball. Hell, even A.J. Brown, although his efficiency might drop, he's going to have more catches this year. It's great for PPR. It's great. What would you rather have for A.J. Brown? Him catching a 60-yard pass and taking it to the house? Or him catching five balls for 40 yards and a touchdown? I'll take that one every day. Every day. Less efficiency at this point has to be good for everybody on that offense, not named Derrick Henry. Ryan Tannehill should see more passing attempts. Johnny Smith should see more targets along with A.J. Brown. Hell, even Corey Davis might see more targets. Who knows? Maybe we could end up seeing a Devontae Parker-esque year out of Corey Davis. I am typically a huge, huge advocate of high level of efficiency. Huge advocate. 
Those teams are typically the ones that you want players on scoring-wise. But the Tennessee Titans' efficiency last year was through the roof. I don't know if I've ever seen that before. Let me repeat this one more time just for you guys that didn't understand this. The Titans were 31st in the league in passing attempts with 448, but they were first in the league in yards per attempt. They were 30th in plays per game, but yet they were top 10 in scoring offenses. You need more balls to go around. You need more third down situations. And I think that they're going to get it this year. Now, I might as well stay on the efficiency train at this point, right? Might as well just keep going because there's a guy out there that was top 10 in almost every single stat that I was looking up. Eighth in deep targets. Eighth in receiving yards. Eighth in completed air yards. Second in touchdowns. One in yards per receptions. First in targets. Second in average target distance. Third in QB rating when targeted. First in fantasy points per target. There was one major issue, and that was his target rate only being 13.5%, which was 23rd for tight ends. So efficiency metrics off the charts. Unfortunately, volume was not there. Can you guess who? I'll give you a second. Which tight end was extremely, extremely efficient, but didn't see as much volume as we wanted to see? You ready? Jared Cook, baby. Jared Cook. Jared Cook. I don't know if the arrival of Emmanuel Sanders and Adam Troutman really hurt him. They might help him. But if I'm Drew Brees and Michael Thomas, who has verbally came out and said that he doesn't want the same workload that he had last year, maybe teams start triple teaming Michael Thomas, whatever it takes. I'm going to be looking to get Jared Cook some of those targets. The division as a whole got significantly better. I'm expecting the Saints to notch up their passing game as well. With that efficiency, if he can now see volume, (laughs) baby, baby, he could explode. He could explode off the charts, and he was still. Still a top-end option this past year. Now let's get him some volume. So we're expecting Drew Brees to see more, or we're expecting Jared Cook to see more targets because the other offenses got better in the division, right? Hopefully, fingers crossed, maybe. We're expecting the efficiency of Michael Thomas to come down slightly. And we're expecting Jared Cook to still be a playmaker. That's what we're hoping for. Jared Cook for me is on fire in seasonal drafts. And hell, if you're trying to go win a championship now, go grab Jared Cook. Go grab him. What are you still listening to me for? Go grab him. Now, if we bounce the other direction when it came to efficiency, Fitzpatrick, Fitzmagic, Fitzpatrick, not a shining example of efficiency. Oof, Definitely not. I'm just sitting here looking at the numbers and it's making me cringe. I mean, his percentage of uncatchable balls was up there with guys like Mitchell Trubisky and Josh Allen. Yeah, that's crazy. His percentage of uncatchable balls was brutal. But, I mean, if you're getting pressure constantly, you probably wouldn't be that accurate either. Let's insert a brand new offensive line. 
Let's, hell, take a future star quarterback right behind Fitzpatrick, and boom! Mike Gusecki becomes relevant. He still has a lot to prove. He really does. But he's turning 25, and this is when it starts to click for tight ends. We saw it happen last year. This is where you want to grab guys in dynasty football. Right before they break out. Right before they break out. Don't go do what I did and drop somebody like George Kittle. Idiot. Ugh. Hate that I did that. No, but you probably won't because we did start to see a breakout. We really did. Gasecki was starting to get it. We saw it start to click. After he played the Jets in week nine, he had four top five tight end finishes for the rest of the year. In the final six weeks, he had four tight end one finishes. He finished out as a tight end six in that time frame. The same time frame that Higby went nuts, Jared Cook went off. Right? The Eagles' only receivers were Goddard and Ertz, so of course, you have Ertz up there. And then Kelsey and Kittle. That's where Gusecki was averaging 13.4 points per game. Yeah, as a top six tight end. If this clicks, if we're right in this clicks, it won't matter that Preston Williams is coming back. It won't matter. This offense should be humming. Potentially a top five scoring offense as a whole in fantasy. Oh, I know. I know I'm going to get some hate for that one. Top five scoring offense for fantasy? Yeah, I really think it could happen. I really do. This offense will be humming. Humming. Right? Chan Gailey's taking over this offense. Could be some lofty expectations. But supposedly the team has gotten on board and they're happy with the coaching change out of letting go of Chad O'Shea. He had a complicated coaching system. They're going to simplify it and Chan Gailey, as long as everything clicks, that offensive line clicks, the receivers click, it could be beautiful. It could be absolutely beautiful. We could be talking about top-end options at their positions for the quarterback position, for the wide receiver position, for the tight end position, and for the running back position. It's really that, not that far-fetched. We need that offensive line to be solid, and we need the defense to suck a little bit, right? They don't have to be horrible, but at least bad enough to let other teams stay in the game. I love it. I love it. And I love Chan Gailey coming in and simplifying that. Because O'Shea's system was brutal. How brutal do you say? Well, not as brutal as... Well, we're trying to figure out what's going on with Austin Hooper, along with Hunter Bryant and Joku in Cleveland. Darren Waller, Jason Witten, Foster Moreau in Vegas. Jalen Everett, Higby in L.A. Logan Thomas, Jeremy Sprinkle, Thaddeus Moss, along with the Dark Horse candidate in Washington. <laughs> Why not just throw in Ertz and Goddard in Philly? Why not? We got Vance and Eric Hebron now in Pittsburgh. Got Kyle Rudolph and Irv Smith Jr. in Minnesota. O.J. Howard, Cameron Brayton, Gronk in Tampa. Hunter Henry, Donald Parham, also in L.A. Wait, we have four cable tight ends in L.A. Yeah. Yeah, we do between the two teams. I don't know why that's important, but it is. It is. We have four, we have four tight ends coming out of L.A. I mean, the scariest one that I'm looking at, the one that's really blowing my mind is Travis Kelsey. God, potentially losing snaps to Ricky Seals-Jones. 
Just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. God, I wonder how many people looked at their phone and about ready to turn that shit off. I'm just kidding, guys. I'm just kidding. Really, one of these does not fit out of the ones that I just named. Give you a second to try and figure it out. You ready? I'm going to say it. I'm going to say it. The Redskins. Obviously, all of these tight ends are pretty terrible. So you have to go and be in a deep, deep league to roster one of these guys in Washington, right? 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 Wrong. Absolutely wrong. Listen, they are bad tight ends, but Ron Rivera, he's a defensive guy. He loves, loves, loves picking on defenses. Those mismatches, love it. Tight ends, they are the biggest mismatch on the field. Listen, he was the defensive coordinator for the Chargers when they had Antonio Gates. Oh, he knows about doing some tight end damage. He knows. When he got to Carolina, guess what one of the first things he did was? It was one of the first things that he did. Maybe not first thing, but it was up there. It was in July. He went out, didn't like his tight end room, and he went out and traded for Greg Olson. The rest is history. Oh no, literally history. I mean, he is in the record books because he was the first tight end ever, ever, to record three consecutive thousand-yard seasons. Wait, wait, wait. So you're telling me that Ron Rivera knows how to work tight ends consistently better than any other coach? Arguably, yeah. He knows how to get them in mismatched situations. We saw it time and time again. And before you come at me with pitchforks and torches, I know Sprinkle, Logan Thomas, and Moss, they're not Greg Olson. They're not on the level. I know. But when you take it back, when you take a step back and look at it, Greg Olson was irrelevant. Irrelevant prior to coming to Carolina. Even the first year in Carolina wasn't great. But the coaches, the coaches are gushing. Gushing about Logan Thomas, who also came in the league as a quarterback and has remained pretty much irrelevant as the tight end. But yet, last year, if he were on the Redskins, he would have the second leading yards at the tight end position. And guess what? He only started three games last year. Am I saying to go out and draft Logan Thomas? No, don't do that. Don't go out and draft Logan Thomas unless you're in a deeper league. But you know the little star, right? The little thing that sends you a notification whenever there's news that pops up about that player? Right? Makes it your favorite player. That little, that little click, that little notification button. Click on that to make sure that anytime there's news coming out about Logan Thomas, you are ready to pounce on him. Because if he ends up stealing that starting job, I really do think that he can do damage at the tight end for a second-year quarterback who honestly didn't look great and would most likely need a safety blanket. Now, There's a dark horse candidate that I'd like to mention. I saw something on Twitter about it. I'm not really sure if it's real or not. I tried to research it. I couldn't find anything outside of a couple different people talking about it, but it wasn't even like beat reporters. It was just fantasy insiders, supposedly. So it could be a completely false rumor. But I don't think it would be terrible. Terrible if this happened. And that's that's Harmon. Kelvin Harmon was supposedly rumored to be putting on weight to potentially move to the tight end position. And I don't know if that means that he's fantasy relevant this year. There's a good chance that he's not. 
But he's extremely aggressive as it is, extremely physical as it is, and he's 6'2", weighted in the combine at 221, add on 15, 20 pounds, and he could become a move tight end. If I start to see that this story is true, I'm going to grab him and I'm stashing him. I am stashing him on the taxi squad. This guy reminded me, when I was doing the film research last offseason, this guy reminded me of a tight end. You know, everybody's talking about Chase Claypool potentially moving to tight end. Kelvin Harmon, I thought, played the position of a tight end just from watching his game film. He was that physical. And I know it takes a while for tight ends to develop, so I'm not expecting him just to come on and dominate, but it's worth keeping an eye on. It really is. But enough about irrelevant players. Done talking about those guys. Let's dive into these tight end battles and see if there's one, maybe both, that have a chance to be relevant. It's going to be a whole lot of numbers. going to be pretty damn boring overall, so I'm going to do my best, my absolute best, to keep this at least semi-entertaining. And let's go ahead and kick it off with Cleveland, who obviously has a, net, a new head coach in Stefanski, who loves to run the ball. We got Austin Hooper there with Hunter Bryan and Joku. Now, when we sit there and we look at what Stefanski did last year being the offensive coordinator of the Minnesota Vikings, he loves two tight end sets on the field. Loves them. I mean, he ran 12 personnel 25% of the time. He had a 49% success rate passing 60% of the time in 12 personnel. He had 122 completions on 164 attempts. That's pretty solid. Now, with the 22 personnel, they actually ran that 12% of the time. They didn't pass a whole bunch. In fact, they only passed 22% of the time. But still, that's another 12% of the time on top of the 25% with two tight ends on the field. Then 13 personnel, which, by the way, you don't know personnel. The first number is the running backs. The second number is the tight ends. The rest of the people that wouldn't be there are now wide receivers. So 13 personnel is one running back, three tight ends, one wide receiver. They ran that 9% of the time and passed it in 37% of those snaps. So, yeah, another big old chunk to add to that. So what are we talking about? Now, 46% of the snaps are in two tight end or more. Love that. Last but not least, they ran 23 personnel, no wide receivers, obviously, 1% of the time. But guess what? They passed three times for two touchdowns. In those 23 personnel. That's awesome. Listen, the summary being 57% of the snaps with two or more tight ends on the field should be more than enough opportunity for both Njoku and Hooper to get snaps. Of the snaps that Kyle Rudolph had, he ran routes on 80% of them. Irv Smith Jr. ran routes on 93% of them. Even Conklin, the third tight end, ran routes on 68% of the snaps he was in the game. So yeah, they are seeing opportunity. They are. I mean, both of them, being Kyle Rudolph and Irv Smith Jr., they both saw an over 20% target share while their team was in the red zone. They're getting the targets, baby. But what we have to look at is where they're lining up. Kyle Rudolph traditionally lines up as the traditional tight end. Irv Smith Jr. was more the move tight end. So when we went down and we broke down where they were getting targets in the red zone, this is where it got a little interesting. Because almost all of Kyle Rudolph's targets came inside the five. 
allowing Rudolph to get eight red zone receptions with six touchdowns. Irv Smith Jr., who lined up in more of the slot position as the move tight end, he only saw two targets inside the five-yard line. He still got seven red zone receptions, but only snagged two total touchdowns. What does this all mean? I feel like I'm asking myself that constantly throughout this episode so far. What it means is Njoku will be more of the move tight end, very similar to Irv Smith Jr., while Hooper plays that typical inline tight end. Neither Rudolph nor Irv Smith Jr. were valued very highly as a fantasy asset. But don't forget, Irv was a rookie. And Rudolph is nowhere near, near the receiver that Hooper is. Even with that being the case, I just don't know if we're going to see an uptick in targets. Which is something that I'm going to need. I'm going to need volume if I want to invest in either one of these guys. And that's not something we see Stefanski do. Stefanski is going to want to run it just like he did in Minnesota. And that's what kept Kyle Rudolph and Irv Smith Jr. from being relevant. Right? Just pounding the ball away. I need to see volume. I need to see targets. And with Chubb there, with Hunt there, with Odell Beckham there, with Jarvis Landry there. I just don't know if we're going to see that. One guy might end up having a good game here and there. Just like like Kyle Rudolph did. Back last year where he had a stretch of like four or five games where he was extremely relevant. But outside of that, both those guys are going to be way, way too volatile, especially in this division. The Ravens, the Bengals, and the Steelers, all three. Well, the Steelers after Minka Fitzpatrick arrived. All three of these guys were top 10 teams versus the tight end. It's not looking promising for either one of these guys. Not looking promising at all. When we talk about Stefanski's old offense, though, the Vikings, I'm not expecting for them to change much. Kubiak was brought in last year to be the offensive advisor slash assistant head coach, and he's already came out, he's taken over the offense, and he's already came out and said that he's going to run the same offense that we saw in 2019. What does that mean for Irv Smith Jr.? What does it mean for Kyle Rudolph? Just going back and looking at it, Minnesota only ran 11 personnel 18% of the time. 18 for 11 personnel. That's three wide receivers, one tight end, one running back. That is not even remotely close to any team outside of the San Francisco 49ers who only ran it 21% of the time. Everyone else was north of 30%. Obviously, they added in Justin Jefferson, but they lost Stephon Diggs. So I think it's going to balance itself out. We saw two or more tight ends on the field in 53% of the snaps. Not expecting that to change. Not expecting. Business as usual. Right? We already talked about that. Business as usual. What I am going to expect is the three tight end snaps to actually increase. They were tied for third in that category as they ran 10% of their snaps out of that formation. The craziest part about it all is that they never passed it one time out of the 13 personnel. That's crazy to me. They didn't pass it one time. 46 plays, every single one of them a running play. That's nuts. I expect that to change. Kubiak is known for opening up the playbook to play action fakes. Joe Flacco had one of his best statistical seasons ever. And his best fantasy season under Kubiak in Baltimore. He was able to make guys like Crockett Gilmore and Owen Daniels and Dennis Pitta somewhat fantasy relevant. 
When the Vikings ran the goal line packages in 2019, they were through the roof when it comes to efficiency. They threw four passes and got three touchdowns out of that. So I believe that they're going to open up some similar play calls in 13 personnel under Kubiak. It only makes sense. The biggest thing, though, that I wanted to look at before I made a decision on either Kyle Rudolph or Irv Smith was how Irv Smith's season progressed and if he had any influence, any influence on Kyle, on Kyle Rudolph's production. Found something actually pretty shocking. It was very, very weird. Five out of Kyle Rudolph's top six weeks came in weeks seven, nine, 10, 11, and 15. Five of Irv Smith's best six weeks came in that same time frame. That's just strange. Both of these weeks, I mean, sorry, both of these players had their best five out of six weeks on the same week. That alone proves that they can both be simultaneously relevant. Now, with Rudolph already being relevant, we need for Irv Smith to take this next step, right? And with 93 targets being vacated by, of course, Stefan Diggs and Kubiak loving play action fakes, this could definitely, definitely happen. And no, I don't think that rookie Justin Jefferson, rookie Justin Jefferson, and Ole B.C. Johnson are taking all of the 93. Sure, they'll take the majority of it, but not all 93. On top of that, Irv Smith only saw two red zone targets like we talked about in the first eight games. Two red zone targets in the first eight games. He saw eight over the second half of the season, showing that the coaching staff and Kirk Cousins were growing their faith in this man, and they believed in him. If he can continue to get target separation like he does, and the coaching staff, along with Cousins, continue to show commitment to this player, we could look at an extremely, extremely early breakout for a tight end, considering the fact that he's not even 22 years old yet. (laughs) Are you kidding me? Dynasty, go get this guy on your roster. He's about to break out as a 22-year-old kid. He's not even 22 yet. That's crazy to me. Now, speaking of breakout players, we had Darren Waller breakout last year. And, man, were people high on Darren Waller going into the offseason. Up until they added Jason Witten. Right? Now they got Carrier and Witten, Foster Moreau. So, for, for me, it was just a little bit curious. Made me curious to see why they went after Witten. Like I said, they already have Moreau. They've got Carrier. They've got O'Leary. Then they picked up a rookie, Nick Bowers. They're on the roster now. It just didn't make a lot of sense to me. Didn't make a lot of sense. It was a head scratcher, especially since Carr doesn't perform well in multiple tight end sets. No, he really doesn't. Gruden must have thought that the reasoning behind that was lack of talent. Because the Raiders, (laughs) they ran two or more tight end sets on the field for 41% of the plays. They still ran two tight end sets. But I don't know if that's going to carry over. I don't know. They ended up adding what? How many receivers in this draft? How about Brian Edwards? Henry Ruggs? Lynn Bowden, although they called him a running back, will still end up sliding into the slot. They already have Hunter Renfro. Tyrell Williams, who they gave a ton of money to. Zay Jones, who I believe, did they trade for? Or did they just pick him up off free agency? I don't remember. 
but they invest in the wide receiver position. So seeing 41% of the plays in two or more tight end sets, I don't know if that's going to carry over. But he is constantly talking about how they need to run the ball more. Right? But then they go and add help in the passing game. I, uh, it's, it's left and right. I don't know what John Gruden's doing. I never know what he's doing. I never know what he's doing over there. God. Mom, where's the meatloaf? Listen, there was personnel groupings that really stood out to me. And that was the 13 personnel. They ran three tight end sets 10% of the time, which is second only to the Titans. Only to the Titans. From what I saw, every team that used this grouping ran the ball more out of that formation, except for the Raiders and the Ravens. Maybe there's a chance. Maybe there's a chance to have multiple successful tight ends in this offense. Except for the fact that when they're in this formation, they threw two tight ends, no touchdowns, and had a passer rating of 60.2. So whether it was talent or Derek Carr just not doing well throwing to the tight ends, that remains to be seen because Derek Carr really didn't turn the ball over. Either way, I don't see Witten as a viable fantasy option. And unfortunately for Moreau, getting now being behind Jason Witten, he's a stash candidate, but it's getting kind of loose. Waller, he might benefit from this. More up in targets, right? They added weapons all around him. But if they end up running the ball more, he's going to see less of an opportunity, which as a whole would make it a very, very difficult guy to trust in 2020. And I don't see him duplicating his 2019 production. Now, speaking of a guy that we have high hopes for to duplicate production, we have Higby, right? In LA with Gerald Everett. And this one gets interesting, really interesting. From weeks one through 11, the Rams had two tight ends on the field for only 18% of the plays. And three tight ends on the field for only 3%. Grand total of 21%. In week 12 and beyond, they had two tight end sets on the field for 35%. Yeah, increased, but that's weird. Because Gerald Everett was dealing with injuries. Listen, McVeigh was altering this offense and worked wonders for Higbury. That and like we talked about Everett getting hurt. But for those six weeks, Higby finished out as a tight end one. Now, what we're trying to figure out is if that's going to continue or is Gerald Everett going to get some workload back? And it's, it's very kind of murky water here because I think that it was Higby being really the only pass-catching tight end on that offense and Munt, who was the second tight end at the time, blocked on 51% of the plays. He only saw five total targets in those six weeks that Gerald Everett was out. So let's just take the total number of targets between Everett and Higby in those first 11 weeks. It was 8.6 per game. And honestly, that's comparable to how many Higby had after that. Well, Higby and Mont. In their final six games, they saw 10.3 targets. So about a target and a half more per game. Sure, we'll call it two targets more per game. But I think what people are neglecting when they're looking at this breakout from Higby was that they faced the worst dif- defense in the league. Defense. They faced the worst defense in the league versus the tight end twice. They faced the second worst defense in the league once and the third worst defense in the league in those six games. 
brutal. Now, they did. They had a good game up against San Francisco, who was a good defense up against the tight end, right? Right? But I remember this game very, very well because I won a lot of money on DFS for this. A lot of money. And if you guys listen to the podcast, you guys play DFS with me, you won a lot of money too. Because Jaquiski Tart was out with an injury. Yeah, yeah, he was. So they tried to cover. They tried to cover Higby with Marcel Harris. Marcel got abused, baby. It was beautiful. It was beautiful. God, that smacked. It was beautiful. Point being, I don't think Higby is as great as people are giving him credit for. I think that it was the matchups that he took advantage of and the fact that Gerald Everett was hurt. I think that they might use more uh, two tight end sets in 2020. But I think you're playing with fire if you decide to go in heavy, heavy after Higby. He's going way, way too high for me in most drafts, and he's an obvious regression candidate. When I go to rank these guys, there's a very good chance he's not going to end up in my top 10. Just saying. You know who is going to end up in my top 10? Ertz and Goddard? Because why not? Why not? Is this too obvious? The Eagles, the Eagles ran the most multi-tight end sets of anyone in the NFL. I'm not even going to get into that. The numbers speak for themselves. But the question is, will they do it again? And hell, they added a ton, a ton of wide receivers. They still have Alshon Jeffrey and Deshaun Jackson in the books. What are they going to do? What are they going to do? Doug Peterson has got me on edge right now. Personally, oh, come on. You've got to believe they're still going to roll out multiple, multiple two tight end sets. Maybe not as many as last year, but they'll still be up there. They'll still be up there. I mean, why would they not? Why would they not? They have two of the best tight ends in the league. And right now, Jalen Rager is a rookie, is not as good of a receiver as Goddard is. Sorry to say it, but he's not. Plus, Carson Wentz already has chemistry with both Ertz and Goddard. They got the chemistry, dude. It's flowing. It's ebbing. It's flowing. It's ebbing. It's flowing. Right? The best thing about these two tight ends is that they're not volatile when they're both on the field. Goddard started to see a major increase in snaps, and by week seven, only saw two games with single-digit points. Ertz, he only had five games as a whole with single-digit points. One of them was 9.4 fantasy points in PPR. And guess what? He was banged up throughout the season. Banged up. He had multiple games where he was not at 100%, yet still produced at a high level. And in all reality, even with all the additions, I believe there's going to be minimal, minimal regression with both of these guys. I'm willing to draft them both. I'm willing to go after them both. I think that Goddard has a huge future with this team. Now, we're going to do a Vance dance. We're going to do that Vance dance even with Eric Ebron now in Pittsburgh. Hmm. Looking into it, they saw 30% of the snaps in two tight end sets. Not bad. Not bad. I'm going to keep this one short and simple, though, because Pittsburgh, they don't keep guys on the field to drop the ball. Look at what happened to, what was it, Moncrief last year? It was Moncrief. Was it Dante Moncrief? Dropped like four balls in one game. Yeah, he didn't last with the team. Was it him or no? Philip Dorsett was with the Patriots. I think it was Dante Moncrief. Either way, they don't keep guys that drop the ball. They don't. And Eric Ebron has the propensity to drop the ball. I don't get it. What's going on in his head? 
He's been in the top 10 in multiple different positive categories that I'm not even going to ramble off because there's so many categories that he's in the top 10 of. But I still cannot elevate him to a top tier tight end because of his drops. In 2018, he led the league in drops. 2018 led the league. This past year, he was sixth and he only played 11 games. He's been dropping passes since he was a rookie. That's why the Lions let him go so easily. Listen, and Vance, Vance isn't that much better of a prospect. We've been waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting. We've been waiting for him to break out, but it just hasn't came yet. It's probably why they went out and signed Ebron, because they didn't see him breaking out this year either. Now, he was sixth in the NFL for route participation, so that's good, but he was like the only tight end on that team. And even with running all those routes, he did not see the targets. The Steelers, typically, they don't pass the tight end a whole lot, at least on a consistent basis. So even with Big Ben coming back, the addition of Claypool actually hurts this fact. I just don't love this situation for either guy. I think both, both these guys have an equal opportunity to put up fantasy points. But that opportunity is extremely, extremely low. If you're desperate for a tight end, sure. This could be a buy-low opportunity on either one of these guys. But I'm not going to buy into either one of these guys personally. Maybe get a share or two of Eric Ebron just for his top touchdown upside. But now looking at the numbers, he's scaring me off a little bit. At least going to Pittsburgh. Now, the big news. Gronk going to Tampa Bay with Tom Brady. Going to be the best tight end in the league now, right? Right? No, come on. Really, guys? You got O.J. Howard there. You got Cameron Brait there. I don't like this situation at all. Listen, I know, I know that there's hate towards saying this, but there are so many players on this team. Not every player can produce. So you have to take a shot on one of these guys if you believe that this is going to be one of the top scoring offenses in the league, and I believe that it is. But which way do I want to go? Which way do I want to go? And the reality of the situation is most of the overrated fantasy players are probably going to be coming to this team, or from this team, I should say. The only guy that I really want shares of, the guy that I'm actually dying for, is Tom Brady, right? And I've never owned Tom Brady in a single league in my entire life. I've never owned Tom Brady ever, ever. But yet, I want Tom Brady. I want Tom Brady. Listen, Bruce Arians, he does like his multiple tight end sets. He uses them on 33% of his plays. But the weird part is his tight ends are rarely successful. This is a little different, though, because you have a Tom Brady-led offense. And we know, we know how much he loves to use his tight end. At least we know how much he loved Gronk and Hernandez. And if he can see, if these tight ends can get on the field, we know that Tom Brady can get him the ball. We know that. But it's going to be a guessing game of who's going to score these points and who's going to pick up fantasy points as a whole. The team is obviously going to be scoring points, but who's getting the touchdowns? So, if you put it that way, Gronk, that's not the stupidest thing you put your money on, right? Even OJ Howard. I mean, he's not even going in some drafts. But high-value targets should be going both of these guys' way. Unless you think that Mike Evans is going to be a bigger red zone threat, which I don't see happening, than OJ Howard and Gronk? Mm. No. I'd rather take a flyer on one of these tight ends. 
Now, Cameron Brait for me, not so much. Cameron Brait for me made his money between the 20s. I don't think that that's going to happen in Tampa Bay. Because Bruce Arians, although he does use two tight end sets, he doesn't use a whole lot of three tight end sets. And O.J. Howard is obviously the more talented tight end. Hopefully, Tom Brady can build up some rapport. He's already working out with him in the offseason, going to some random parks and throwing around, running routes, getting used to each other, probably giving each other handies in the park bathrooms. You know, Handy J. Maybe a little kid's earmuffs, glory hole action. Right? Right? And just one more thing about that is Gronk struggles to stay healthy. Struggles. That's why he left football. He's tired of getting hurt. Tired of the toll that it took on his body. So if they want to keep Gronk healthy and available for a playoff run, he might not see nearly as many snaps, which means that OJ Howard could actually be the tight end to own on this team. Yeah, it's crazy, right? Dude, I could see this team breaking records. I really could. I mean, this offense is dynamic. Adding in some young players. Still got the veterans on the team. Jameis Winston with this team. Led the league in passing. I don't know if Tom Brady's still at that level, but they're going to put up some fantasy points. They really are. And believe it or not, guys, it's going to end the episode for us. Hope you guys enjoyed it. Listen, go join us on Patreon. Go show your support. Leave us a review. Give us five stars. means a lot. You can listen to us on Google Play, Apple, iTunes, Stitcher, and CastBox. Huge shout-out to Fantasy Football Discussion. Love you guys. Keep those questions coming. You guys have the best ones ever. Love it. Follow us on Twitter, FF underscore Intervention. Hey, thanks guys for listening, and thank you for letting me intervene with your fantasy football life. I'm out. Hey, my mom told my niggas is dope. Switch up a stove, pick up a stove, they feeling away, they know I'm the goat. That's how you bang a podcast.